0: Hello! And welcome to the Mobile Monopoly edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon, joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And by the Huffington Post's one and only Emily Peck. Hello! And we are going to be talking about things on the move. We are going to be talking about New York's Slightly fucked up. Is that a good technical term? I'd remove the slightly. Subways. <laughs> if, you, if you've been to New York in the past couple of years, you might well have a horror story of being on the subway. And we are going to see if that is fixable. We know it's bad. The interesting question is whether it's fixable and whether it is fixable by a person. And we're going to talk a little bit about this Brit who's come in to try and fix it. Um, we are also going to talk because it's an awesome story about what I called in a Slate piece performative vegetarianism, and um, which is which is WeWork's latest corporate policy. Um, certain people think it's incredibly stupid, though certain people would include myself. Um, but mostly, or initially, at any rate, we are going to talk about a rather large. Fine, which Margareta Vestager, the European Community or European Union antitrust chief, who's kind of awesome, we like her, has brought down on Google. Um, Emily, Hi. what's what's the background here?
1: The background is I think about Two years ago, the EU started this investigation. Um, the issue is Android, which is Google's mobile operating system, which is ostensibly free for um, developers and it's
0: um, open source.
1: Open source, um, but to use it, Google makes people use only a certain version of Android and requires them to put Chrome and uh, Google Search apps on the phone. So when you get the phone, it already has the apps. So you use the apps.
0: He so was like no. The question. Uncool. The question is basically, you know, in in the grand economic scheme of things, where people walk around saying there's no such thing as a free lunch. Why would Google be giving away this incredibly valuable operating system for free? And the answer turns out to be because they do take a leaf out of the old Microsoft playbook and bundle it with their search product. And the result is that if you think that google has a monopoly on desktop search which it does it's like over 80% just wait till you see what the share of mobile search it has it's like way up in the high 90s and this wasn't
1: a this wasn't a certainty when everyone switched to mobile whenever it was a few years ago because right because you have your phone and your phone isn't like a desktop where you open up and start searching your phone is app driven so if you don't have the search app you might you might not search. You might yeah. just go to your Gmail. You and in fact, there.
0: I I, ha- I know one person. Um, I believe he might even be listening to this podcast right now. Hi, Larry, if you're out there, who used to have a Windows phone. Um, there is such a thing as a Windows phone. And if you look at people who have Windows phones, there aren't a lot of them, but if you p- look at the people who do have Windows phones, it turns out that the share of, share of search that Google has on Windows phones is like 25%. Mm-hmm. So it's by no means obvious that like, absent the operating system pushing you there, that you're going to be using Google.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think it's important when we're talking about new companies and monopoly and tech companies and monopoly that we're going beyond simply market share. Because I think that tends to be what people look at when you're thinking about whether or not um, a sector is competitive. But when you're talking about Google, to me, the problem is not just you know they control a lot of the market the problem that i see is that they are actually harming consumers that this tends to be in the us that we don't regulate monopolies unless we see that consumers are being hurt usually with prices but if you consider what's happening with google you could probably say the same thing with facebook is they are actually charging us more and more in terms of data and so in i this is also extremely important moving forward. Because if you look at where we see the economy going in terms of AI development, machine learning, that is all based on access to data. So if you have companies that have essentially created a monopoly on most people's data, they have such a competitive advantage that the idea that any other company moving forward is going to be able to compete is somewhat ridiculous.
0: So the, the idea here is that when every single person with a telephone does a search, and they probably do that, you know, however many dozen times a day in one way or another. If all of those search queries wind up getting aggregated by Google, and Google can then apply machine learning and AI techniques to that corpus of search queries to be able to create new products, that gives Google an insuperable advantage over anyone else in terms of building new products. And that's just not fair.
1: And it seems like the EU as opposed to the United States is really being tough on Google. I mean, this $5 billion fine was pretty unprecedented. The biggest ever. And 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 they fined them a couple of years ago last last year, last year, two billion as well. And they're really making an effort to rein in technology companies over there whereas over here it seems like we're struggling i mean it it seems like we're even struggling to pinpoint the issue especially when it comes to not not just google but facebook also now um clearly needs some kind of regulation in my opinion after what's happened with the and election. it turns out
0: that the eu is doing that regulation and let's be clear here that the important thing is not defined the, right. Uh, right. the important thing is the consent decree which basically says that google needs to fix this and take out all of these forced, you know, yes. searches within I think ninety days. 90 days. Mm-hmm. And then and then if they don't do that, then the remedies start becoming bigger and bigger. Like obviously Google can pay five billion euros. Like that's not a slap on the wrist, but it's it's um it's easily affordable. What's important is that going forwards they're not going to be allowed to do this anymore. And as you say the reason why they're not going to be allowed to do this anymore is entirely to do with the EU competition commissioners and nothing to do with the rather toothless American commissioners.
2: Right. And I think this is, it's my favorite word, which is complicated, is that on the one hand, I completely agree. We're getting to a point where a number of companies are able to engage in the practices of a monopolist. And to me, that's the, that's the big problem, regardless of market share. That's the problem. And in the EU, they are starting to crack down. And on the one hand, I think this could be good. But I also think it's important to remember that regulations always have multiple effects. And when you're structuring regulations, and if you make them extremely onerous, you can actually – Potentially make the landscape less competitive. This is something that we have seen in banking, where when you have extreme, when you have ex- like tons and tons of regulations and it's extremely expensive and time-consuming, it actually makes it harder for others to compete because they can't afford that.
0: But I don't think that's a problem when you have a Google-specific regulation.
2: Oh no, I I, I agree. I, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to this regulation. I'm just saying if we think moving forward about what it means to regulate tech companies, and I think we will and we have to. I think it's not a simple solution. It's not, and I also think it shouldn't, I personally believe it shouldn't be like the idea of punishing. It should more be the idea of I like Google. I like Amazon. I actually like a lot of these companies. I think big companies are great. What I don't think is great is when you have so much market power in a few players that then actually makes the entire landscape less competitive, right. less dynamic, I think, less I think, innovative. I think
0: the answer there and the way you avoid this problem of, of tying up the entire industry with regulations is to take a leaf out of the bank regulators' books. And instead of trying to regulate the industry, Quay industry, is to regulate the handful of tech giants individually. Every single large bank has a permanent cadre of regulators who sit inside the bank and who basically make sure that you know, they're keeping an eye on things. And you can do the same thing with Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple. And you wouldn't need to do it in, with anyone else. And you'd basically cover the bases.
1: I went back and was looking at what happened to Microsoft in the 90s, because we know the Department of Justice sued them. It was a very similar situation, I think, to what Google's experience. Right. They now. were
0: bundling one thing with mm-hmm. another. Right. And, and they were basically using their dominance in operating right. systems to try and get a, domin- a dominance they, in web browsers. They tried
1: to force everyone to use Internet Explorer... Um, by bundling it with Windows OS, which everyone was using at the time. um but the problem one of the problems was window um Internet Explorer was terrible. Um And so, um one of the analysis I was reading pointed out um that once the um the, the 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 case against Microsoft kind of didn't go exactly as planned. um, and they sort of won, they sort of lost. but the the end result was more competition. And the end result was a company like Google. Thrive. There was more innovation in tech. The tech sector, you know, did well. Microsoft was never quite as dominant. And and today, like no one uses Internet Explorer. No one uses Internet Explorer. No, very few. No, almost no one. Um, But what I'm saying is, um, the actions of the government stepping in actually served to increase innovation, increase competition. It kind of worked, and I feel like right now the climate is such that people are afraid of these kinds of solutions. But like, when you listen to that Mark Zuckerberg interview with Kara Swisher on Recode, where he somehow defends Holocaust deniers, like a little bit, which was bizarre. I felt like he was like, almost crying out for regulation. Like, I know he doesn't want they don't want to be but well,
0: he, he kept on saying if you go back to his congressional testimony, like, we believe that good sensible regulation is necessary. And yes. he would he in <laughs> principle, he's he has said that he's okay with the idea and i just think that instead of starting with complaints which is what the eu did in this case and then investigating the specific complaint and then like coming down with a fine and a consent decree why not just you know as i say embed some regulators in these companies and just say like listen let's just make sure you don't do really dumb things but i
2: think it's going to have to be a little bit more than that. Right. I mean,
0: that might not be sufficient, but it would definitely be a positive step.
2: Oh, certainly. I agree. But I think when people talk about regulations, the term regulations is thrown around a lot, but people tend to not always dig deep and say, well, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to regulate a company like Google? What would that actually mean looking moving forward beyond, you know, simply saying they can't, you know, embed all of these things. But is that really the only problem?
0: Oh, There's at least one ongoing investigation. Like There were three big ones. Yeah, there's
2: an ad sense. Yeah.
0: That, that the EU was, has been engaged in. They've basically finished two of them and the third one is still open. Uh, we should say that Google is appealing this ruling and they claim that they're the driven snow and completely innocent and don't deserve any fine at all. And I think actually this is problematic. Um I think this is a bad move from Google's point of view, because while you can be sympathetic to Google on certain things, like I was sympathetic to Google when they had that big fight about Google Books and scanning all of those books and the copyright. Um, there are certain areas where you can sort of understand where they're coming from. In with this one, it seems pretty cut and dried.
1: But... Why I, I mean, I get it like they're giving you a thing for free, and they're saying in order to have the free thing, you have to do these other things, and they're doing it to keep their business no, but they're, well, what, I would argue they're, that-
0: they're saying that what they're saying is, and this is absolutely ludicrous is you know they've come out with statements saying we're not anti-competitive against other search engines because other search engines are only a download away. Oh, that's As I come yeah,
2: on, no. right? And what they've also they've they tried to they've tried to make the argument that because they don't make hardware in the same way that obviously mm-hmm. Apple does, that they they essentially just sell services. So if you're really limiting what the money they can make from those, then that is putting them in a much less competitive place. And I think that's slightly ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and and it, what's clear is that the reason why Google has Android, and I think this case has made this clear is not because it's going to become a massive profit center on a par with their ad revenues. You know? The reason why they have Android and the reason why they have Chrome is is like a different reason.
1: To keep people in the Google environment, to keep that ad revenue coming in,
0: to keep well, people well, searching on Google to get and the ad Well, to get the data, data that's yes, coming in, exactly.
2: Data. And and I do think that if you're moving forward and thinking of what does it mean to regulate the tech companies, I do think we're going to have to move beyond the old tools of antitrust law. We're going to have to start looking at companies acquiring their competitors like in utero, which we've seen, especially with Facebook, you know, in terms of some of the practices, the pricing practices that Amazon can engage in because of the way the capital markets work right now, where people only care about capital gains. There are a lot of things that we now need to start looking at. And when it comes to Google, one thing at some point that might be an issue is that their data may need to be available to other companies at some point. And
0: and yet there is if if you're saying that the old fashioned tools aren't adequate, I would agree with that. But I would say that the, the biggest old fashioned tool of all, which is breaking up companies, um, is actually an interesting and possibly good solution here. If you broke Google up into, if if you if you forced them to spin off YouTube, force them to spin off like Gmail, um, force them to spin off. Double click, which was the number one like original sin acquisition, which they made, which basically caused all of this monopoly craziness to be possible in the first place. Um, you know, it would be hard because it's so deeply integrated at, at this point, but there are um, possible spin offs and, and breakups, which I think people should be lo- taking seriously. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I do think that when you're talking about some of the tech companies, breakups might not be the best option especially like social media that that seems like it no i
0: think i think in social media it's even more obvious if you forced instagram to get spun off from facebook then that would actually become a much more competitive um space
2: that i would agree with but if you're talking about like facebook itself there's no real way to essentially that thing but
0: no but remember that facebook has four social networks not one so if you forced it to break up instagram facebook messenger and whatsapp then that would be a much more vibrant, competitive space than having them all owned by the same company.
2: No, that's fair. And I also think there could be something as well of allowing a company like Google. to. So they have the part of the business that's essentially just search, which at a certain point may need to be regulated like utility. But then there could still be they could still have other segments that were not regulated like utility. So, I mean, there are lots of different um, solutions.
1: Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the MTA. Which New Yorker here takes the subway the most? It's not me. I don't take it a huge amount.
2: I take it a pretty significant amount, especially this year.
0: (laughs) So, Anna, as the the strap hanger extraordinaire of the Slate Money team, um, how has the service declined or not over the past couple of years?
2: Well, I've been thinking about this because I came to New York in 2000. And I kind of remember, you know, New York in 2000. I remember the subways in New York in 2000. And granted, obviously, I was young and fresh and everything seemed wonderful. But it does seem like things were, you didn't have these types of delays, things were cleaner, all of that. And it does seem like steadily, there's been this decline. And then in the last few years, and especially last year, last summer, it was like, Everything just stopped working at once. Like All of a sudden, you would have every week like four times where the train was you know, 35 minutes later than it was supposed to be. Or you'd get trapped on a train. Or you'd have to actually be like, I had a few times where I actually had to be like, walked off the train because it could only go halfway into the station. Like Absurd things that we've never had to deal with before. I mean, New Yorkers are used to the fact that the air conditioning never works or the fact that you will see rats on the platform. Like, these things aren't great, but you're kind of used to them. But you at least expect the train to be there.
0: So, Emily, do we have a feel for why this is happening? Um, yes. And is that is the reason why it's happening just ultimately an incredibly simple answer, which is it's the state of New York not spending enough money on maintaining the system?
1: Um, it's We can just leave it there and say that it's that simple, but um, it, it's a, it's about 20 years of the state siphoning money away from the MTA to pay for other stuff, most infuriating was i believe last year the governor of new york andrew cuomo took money away from the mta to um help ski resorts upstate he diverted funds from the mta which um one of the biggest transit the operations the biggest transit yes, operation in, in North the united America. states yes for these um for these ski resorts and especially and this this was happening for a while really picked up pace after the crash in 2008 um, and then things – so so it was siphoning money away after 2008. Then Superstorm Sandy hits, and the system is just a huge shock to um, the system, which is already really old infrastructure. And things got even worse, culminating in what I think last year they called it like the summer of hell or something, like crazy like that. Um, and now I guess there's finally a recognition after this – like really decades of just letting this whole thing go into decline. There's a recognition now that – even by Cuomo, like, oh, we probably need to fix this. So, enter the reason we're talking about it is this profile of this um, British fellow, Andy Byford, who's been brought in from London, right, to uh, fix, and he was in Toronto, And Toronto, to fix uh, the MTA that Anna told us about.
0: And the, and the question facing that the question the big question is: Can you hire this like guy who, by all accounts, is really good at fixing subway systems, really good, um, and say, hey? That's what we need to do. We've hired him. And now the subway system can be fixed. Or ultimately, you know, if the problem is at the level of New York State and the governor and the dysfunctional politics of New York State, like the solution has to be at that level as well.
2: Well, what I think is important here is that what caused this is it was a team effort. I mean, Mm -hmm. you had you had politicians, state, city, you could even put in federal, you had The unions, you had the construction companies, and you even had customers. I mean, New York is one of the few places where people will throw their limbs into trains because, like, apparently we care more about being late than dismemberment. But like, we 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 actually do slow down the trains. Like, the New Yorkers are some of our (laughs) some of our habits are a problem, but we're not the biggest problem. I would say the biggest problems are going to be the politicians, the unions, and the construction companies. So if you're talking about how to fix this, you're going to have to work on many different levels. It's not simply saying, "Oh well, we'll get some more." State money, and that that's certainly a part of it. But you're talking about changing the entire signal system to this, I was like CBTC or something. I may be misremembering that acronym. A system that makes tremendous sense. It's what we've used. The number of other cities have used. But this is going to take. I mean, people are talking about like 40 years to fix this. These are big problems. And when you're talking about the New York City subway system, part of the reason that they don't have enough money. It's because it's so expensive. It is so much more expensive than anywhere else. There was a great piece in the New York Times.
1: um, I think it was last year that explained why the New York City subway system is to to build things is um, multiples and multiples upon multiples more expensive. Like the the, we just had something called the Second Avenue uh, subway. Um, It's just a few stops. It's not three three stops. stops. It took over a decade to build. And they compared it to this other project in Paris, very similar amount of track built, and the um, the New York City subway system spent six times as much money than Paris. And I mean, and and it, because for some reason the MTA, when when unions and construction companies negotiate on projects, the MTA doesn't have a voice. It can't say, guys, guys, costs are crazy. Like that's too much money. Like there's no, well, me- no- mediation between. Parties that have no – it's not their money. It's,
2: I was floored by this. Exactly. It's, there's, there are no incentives to keep costs low. Right. That, exactly. you know, not surprisingly, you have a lot of these like bizarre union requirements that you need two people on every train, which is nowhere else. There are certain machines that in other places you need like two or three people here. You need 20. Mm-hmm. You have the weird jobs like the person who oversees the break room, the person that watches people <laughs> move things, the person <laughs> that pushes the button on electric <laughs> elevators. I mean, things that these are not real jobs. You had the, a project where there were 900 people staffed on 700 jobs. Right. Like, yeah, this is a problem. And the politicians agree to it for a number of reasons, like one in the state, because the state controls the system. They control a large part, obviously, of the funding. But if you're a governor, you have, you're have you beholden to the entire state. And the rest of the state often will say, we don't want to pay for New York City's subway system, which is absurd because we pay for everything there. So it's not always in the best interest of the governor to really care about the New York City subway system. Wait, hang on.
0: This, this is the bit which I don't entirely understand, like... If I understand how the governor has non-New York City things to care about and might be less inclined to spend money on the subway system than, say, the mayor of the city would be, were it up to the mayor, which it's not. Um, But that said, like, surely it's still in the governor's interest to care about. The costs and the expenses, and to want to bring those down, rather than to be very happy with them being enormous. No, the I unions
1: give a lot of money to the governor. I think the one piece I wrote was millions from the unions to the governor. They're a really big. They have a lot of political um, weight and capital in the state, so that kind of changes the calculation. Exactly,
2: and there is fiscal prudence is not exactly in vogue. So if you're thinking about well, what I, what can I do? I can really take on the unions and potentially lose a tremendous amount of voters that way. Or I can take on more debt. I can kind of siphon things from other areas. I can just not pay for maintenance. And I think this is the important thing, too. Once this became such an issue that people really started screaming about it, they did respond. The problem has then been for years and years, it's been this kind of steady decline, but it hasn't been like an emergency. So it's not surprising that if you're a politician, you're not going to waste a tremendous amount of political capital for that. Now you will, or not waste, now you'll mm-hmm. use that political capital, but in the past you wouldn't.
0: So I think the the big issue here is actually similar to what we've seen in London and other cities as well, which is that politically, um, and you, you actually see this even in like arts organizations, you know, uh, it's always easier and sexier to build something new than it is to maintain something old yes. and so if you want to build like a whole new subway line although it did take 75 years to build this uh, second avenue <laughs> yes. subway, um you know ultimately they've ma- they've managed to do that they've managed to build the new station on the seven train which also cost like three billion dollars or mm-hmm. something insane like that. It's, i think the most expensive um train station in the world and it's just like one subway station for one subway line um but those things at least you get to point to and they're shiny and new whereas when you're talking about the sort of decrepit infrastructure and the need to spend enormous amounts of money just to stop it getting from even more decrepit and then that infrastructure is is like slammed by hurricane hurricane sandy it just it's the least sexy kind of spending you can get and you see this also with like you know the water tunnels and the steam pipes, which are exploding. And like, there's a bunch of just really important old infrastructure, which you need to spend money on and that no politician ever loves to spend money on. But it, but it was an
1: infrastructure week at the federal government. <laughs> Donald Trump's going to fix everything.
2: Well, and last thing I just will say, just because I'm just going to anger New Yorkers, is that part of the problem, I think, again, is a little bit of us, is that we on the one hand want everything to be fixed, but we never want the trains to be shut down. We all complain about this, and and that is part of the problem too it 's one of the only twenty four hour systems and they even talked about this when they were trying to fix I think things on like the seven where like every week there was a different reason why they couldn't fix it and so I do think that's another issue for a lot of politicians, a lot of you know people in general it's that you don't want to upset consumers right
0: that that i mean New Yorkers will complain about everything, and certainly um twenty four hour subway service whenever anyone hints that like fixing the subway system is going to require closing it down at night um on certain lines um then you always get like you know some nurse who needs to come back from the hospital at three in the morning saying like now i can't do that anymore and everyone's like you we could just pay for your like you know luxury rolls royce to ferry you home it would be cheaper than keeping the subway open um But like, there's no mechanism to do that. And so everyone just gets up in arms and says, no, we need to keep subway open 24 hours. It's a ratchet. Once you give people something, you can't take it away. It's a, and this is, I think the, to come back to the central question here, the kind of problem where having a really competent administrator running the whole thing and being able to communicate things well, and being very clear about what he wants and trying to hold himself and everyone else accountable to those things can actually help at the margin and i'm 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 not completely pessimistic i think there's no way that anything subway related you can ever really be an optimist in new york but um i think there is some reason to believe that like finding the right executive is important and that he is the right executive
1: he did seem—I mean, I encourage everyone to read this piece in The New Yorker. He seemed very competent. Um, he His worker's on his side. He's out visiting all the subway stations. Um, he's really trying to fix things where he can. I mean, he's not going to be able to solve the problem of the unions and the analysts and the consulting companies and the governor, but— for what can be fixed for the those things on the margins, like you were saying, this guy does seem rather competent.
2: Agreed. And can I just say one last thing? Because I thought this was an art, a detail related to the article that was funny. He, um, so Byford has been in office since January. Bill De Blasio had not reached out to him until after the article was published, and, and it was noted in the article that he had never reached out to him.
0: This, this is yeah. I mean yeah. This is you, you can you can get all of your like, lovely New York politics podcast he needs somewhere else i'm sure (laughs) but the the idea that the mayor of new york doesn't actually talk to the person running the subways of new york even if he's not technically in control is kind of bonkers this episode of slate money is brought to you by wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called the best one yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on the best one yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Pescatarianism. Vegetarianism. What? What are we calling it? What's the name for it? I, whatever the name is, uh, WeWork has adopted it. It is um, the new policy across seventy-two different cities around the world and four hundred and some locations. Um, that if WeWork is paying for food in any way, shape, or form, that means if they're catering anything, if they're or even if they're reimbursing a meal which you've expensed, then that. Food cannot include any meat, and it cannot include any poultry.
2: But it can include fish, but it and can. Eggs in, it can. can yeah,
0: like it can inf- include farmed salmon. It can include eggs. It just can't include lamb. So
2: <laughs> I don't know if people are expensing a lot of lamb. But
0: <laughs> I, I like if I. I always order lamb when it's on the menu. I love lamb.
1: No, lamb's very good. We just said we're doing a meat share now where they send the box of meat to your oh, house. Oh, yeah? And there's a lot of lamb, and it's so good. I recommend a meat share, by the way, for everyone.
0: So you're but not if you work at WeWork. So you're not a vegetarian? No.
1: <laughs> No, and I, uh, your piece on this was very good. It's just WeWork, which everyone knows what WeWork is, right? A company that
2: leases out office. If they space. listen to our show, we've definitely ranted about WeWork of okay. times.
1: So. Um, so it's just it's a marketing move. It's virtue signal- signaling. It's WeWork saying part of our brand is that we're hip and cool in this very specific enviro way. Like Starbucks is banning straws, and WeWork is banning meat, and it's not really going to help the environment in any way. It just signals. This is our brand. Right.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's just as and as Felix, as you did know in your article, which I think it's so illogical and it doesn't make any sense from a logistical perspective. If you think of like, so you're going to mean So if you comp a meal with a client, you have to tell your client, no, I'm sorry, you can't order that. I would have covered you, but you ordered chicken soup. So, like, I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. I don't understand how that works at all. Like
1: so if your client gets a burger, they have to pay for it out of their own pocket, or you wind up paying for it out of, God forbid, your own pocket?
0: It's it's um pretty unenforceable, I would say. And <laughs> and, and this is, you know, I don't think this um, policy has entirely been thought through. Um and it it, it but what it does do is it helps to reveal WeWork as one of these companies where the founders can just have some harebrained idea one day and say, hey everyone, we're going meat-free, and then impose this on a company of 6,000 people in a whole bunch of wildly diverse group of cities many of which do not have amazing you know, resources for people who don't want to eat meat. I mean, it's always possible, but it's not always easy. Um, and And just not Think twice about the practicalities of it, and I think this shows how very um, disorganized. I, th- I think it's symptomatic of a certain kind of ADD nature of WeWork as a whole. They do random acquisitions which don't make any sense. They they have
2: community adjusted EBITDA.
0: <laughs> they have community adjusted EBITDA. They yeah they like. There's a lot of weird things about WeWork which don't make sense. Um, not. You know, at least the fact that it has this insane valuation, which just that you can't get to, like, if you're looking at it as a real estate company. And they do things which don't make sense about food as well. You know, if you wanted to care about the environment, you would probably look first and foremost at the buildings you are renting space in and say, like, we, we need these buildings to be energy efficient. Are they doing that? No sign that they're doing that.
1: They are building um a pre-K I learned called We, we Grow, Grow that costs yeah. $36,000 a year and is run by someone with no education experience who happens to be married to the founder. Um, they're doing that. that. I don't know if they will be meat. I guess there's no meat there either. Unclear.
0: I, I'm going to assume that these these like toddlers are not going to be chowing down on burgers.
1: <laughs> Hope <laughs> yeah, they're but, okay.
0: And, and I also think it a little bit speaks to the sometimes
2: Paternalism that you get in big tech. This idea that they know how to do one thing. Oh, granted, this is not actually a tech company; it's a fake tech company. But in general, in the kind of new economy, we've done, we can do one thing. Thus, we can tell you how to do everything else. You know, we saw this a little bit with Mark Zuckerberg and the Newark public school system. I think that this is something that we should question a little bit. We question, yes, we, we question. We,
0: so I, I have a. So I wrote about this, and I was particularly interested in the responses i got from vegetarians um there were a few militant vegetarians who were like this is not only good but necessary and everyone should do it and um i don't eat meat and no one else should eat meat um but the majority of vegetarians were like this is really stupid and it actually just gives vegetarians a bad name because like that vegetarian has to be a vegetarianism has to be a personal choice. It shouldn't be imposed on others because that just creates resentment.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I completely I agree. could
1: see how this would make you kind of hate vegetarians a little bit.
2: No, and as the resident vegetarian, I will <laughs> say that, yeah, I felt exactly the same way. I think the idea of imposing this on people as opposed to saying like, you know, I, you could have seen that maybe they would have been like in WeWork offices, they would have more vegetarian options or, you know, A day where they have more plant-based options or something. Or
0: even, by all means, if you're providing lunch in the office, make that lunch vegetarian. I don't think anyone's going to complain about that. But try and do it on an office-by-office basis and try and get those offices to buy into it. And, you know, if there's an office in Buenos Aires where, like, no one has any interest in vegetarian lunches, then maybe don't do it in Buenos Aires, you know?
1: This is just uh, uh, this is just another example of a corporation trying to signal its its worthiness and its you know greenness by doing something rather absurd and ineffectual and in this case I forgot what you called it in your headline um wasn't moronic it was tyrannical tyrannical thank you um <laughs> that yes. that was
0: yeah that was obviously my editor used that one I uh, I, have, I, I can't claim any of my <laughs> own headlines but this is the thing which i don't understand if you if you think of this as virtue signaling if you think of this as some kind of pr stunt like it clearly doesn't work right i mean no one is i mean the number of people who actually think that we work is a cooler better more corporately social company as a result of these headlines is much smaller than the number of People who think that WeWork is off its trolley. Yep,
1: but now they're trying to get um they're trying to get like big Fortune five hundred clients. And this is just the kind of like nonsense that Fortune five hundred companies actually do. So <laughs> Well, it they, might I, actually, I don't think they would do this. <laughs> they would they they wouldn't do this, but they would think about it and they'd do some like weird other ver- you know, they, they're always doing these kind of pulling these kinds of moves that try to <laughs> signal that they're so green and they're trying to be whatever it is, um, appealing to women or you know whatever bullshit it's the, the, their kind yeah, of no, thing corporate,
0: we should have a whole like episode on corporate virtue signaling because i think there are interesting ways to do it oh can i just come back when <laughs> it comes to corporate virtue signaling i need to um circle around in in the spirit of the circular economy to emily peck's number from last week do you remember what your number was last week oh
1: i heard that that number was I, I learned later my number was incorrect. It was 500 million right straws yes. a day. And it, that's from a a child?
0: So the person who came up with <laughs> 500 million straws a day, the source of this data point is a nine-year-old kid.
1: It was in the Times. <laughs> I read it in the Times. So it might,
0: it might be true, but we probably have no reason to believe that it's true. I'm sorry. It's
2: probably no worse than anyone else's estimate I'm of how so many sorry. straws we use. It was in
1: the Times.
0: So I think this is our uh, our segue to move on <laughs> to the numbers round. Um, uh, Emily, do you have a slightly more reliable number uh, this week?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, not really. My number is my number is twenty five dollars. That is how much per hour this woman. Um, this young woman who wrote a money diary in Refinery29, which is a women's website,
0: uh, uh, allegedly hourly,
1: makes her hourly pay. is 25 like an intern at an
0: HR company. An
1: intern at an HR who company. Who apparently doesn't
0: have any work to do and just sits there doing her nails yes. all
1: day. So Refinery29 sort of made the headline like this is how she gets by on $25 an hour in New York City. Well, it turns out she gets by on $25 an hour in New York City by also getting... An allowance of about, I think, fifteen hundred dollars a month from her parents, who also pay her rent. Um, And for some reason, four thousand dollar rent
0: for a one bedroom.
1: And for some reason, um, Twitter just went crazy over this uh, story. I think it just touched a lot of raw nerves about how expensive it is to live here and who gets to live here. And and,
0: and who gets $25 an hour internships <sighs> at HR companies. And who gets
1: $25 an hour internships at HR companies. Um, people just went crazy. I mean, it, the number of hot takes spawned by this anonymous diary was actually pretty astounding. But
0: um, as, a, as a pro tip, like I will say that um, one way to get very cheap food is yes to go to your friend's house in the Hamptons and have it made for you by their private chef. <laughs> that, that is That's one part. Of it the works. Money it's, diary. it's quite, it's yes. quite cheap. If you yes, know. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is one thing she did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my number is two hundred and sixty thousand, which is the number of bronze coins that was found in a samurai's fifteenth res- century samurai residence in japan there was this huge ceramic jar and it was filled with over a quarter of a million of these bronze coins and these bronze coins were basically the foremost store of value in 15th century japan and this samurai had like Presumably, stolen this money because this is like an insane amount of money for one person to have. Um, maybe
2: he worked for the transit union,
0: and he yeah, maybe he exactly, and or possibly he was some kind of a tax collector. No one really knows, but he buried this money, and it was only found, you know, six hundred years later. Um, and the reason I'm I'm fascinated by this story is not just like, oh my god, how do you accumulate two hundred fifty thousand bronze, bronze coins, but also. This whole idea that people have about the power of compound interest and, like, the stores of value and, you know, like, this guy, you know, these bronze coins are worth nothing today. They, they, they were, you know, worth, like, some massive proportion of, like, Japanese GDP back then. And now they're basically an archaeological curiosity.
2: What is money? Profound. <laughs> um,
0: so, yeah, remember that when you, you know, never sell any of your Bitcoin. <laughs>
2: um, okay. Well, my number is also about a metal. Um, mine is 5988 So that was one of the lower prices I saw this week for the price of copper, uh, a metric ton of copper. That's significant because it's under $6,000 and represents this large decline we've seen in copper prices, which is significant because copper is known for being an indicator of where the market thinks the global economy is going to go, because it's used in everything, especially in terms of um, infrastructure, construction, telecom, And a lot of this has to do with fears about China, especially related to the trade war and lower um, industrial production. And I just thought this was kind of interesting because right now everybody's talking about different indicators. Everyone's favorite is the yield curve. And I think that I'm always a little suspicious about whether an indicator means something will happen. But I do think this definitely tells us that a lot of people in the market think things are actually not going that well.
0: Also, bronze, it's basically copper.
2: Wait,
1: what?
0: Bronze is, is an alloy. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like two-thirds copper and one-third tin.
1: Oh, all right. It's yeah. so interesting that you're both is, hitting on the we're same thing here. are both on
0: the value of copper. Um, you know, it's not a great investment. <laughs> um, oh, we need to have a Slate Plus segment, and we have a good one. We are going to have an awesome Slate Plus you know, um, knock-down-drag-out fight between um Emily and Anna, something like that, about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and whether or not she's economically literate. This is going to be a doozy. So hang around for that if you're a Slate Plus member. If you are not, then that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Uh keep those emails coming on slate money at slate.com. One question which I have been wondering. I've had a request from someone very important to me, my wife, for a Brexit edition. Because Brexit is going particularly tits up right now. <laughs> and we kind of need to check back in on um on that whole thing and try and work out what whether an entire country of 80 million people is doomed um so the question i have for you lovely listeners out there since you were so great to come up with adam Two's last time what is like who should we get on who can who is who can come into brooklyn and talk to us about brexit and who's an expert on european politics and trade and brexit Um, send us your nominations slate money at slate.com Uh, Many thanks to all of the producers this week. It has taken at least half a dozen of them. And um, we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money.